Well, good morning. I want to welcome you here in present. People are present here and those that are joining us live stream. Just mentioned a couple of things. Yes, the cafeteria is open. Yes, we're following restaurant protocol. So if you can grab a mask on the way, there's some available if you forgot yours. Just wear it going down to the cafeteria. Once you're sitting down, obviously, restaurant protocol, you got to eat. You got to take the mask off, right? But uh, no, in the church services, we have the freedom to uh, not wear a mask while we worship, which is great. Um, I want to mention that David McFarland is going to host a seminar here next Saturday. Please sign up for that. I think you're going to get some amazing ideas of how to share your hope and share Christ with those around you from 9.30 to 11.30, and he'll be here on Sunday. So please join us for that time. We're going to uh, experience communion together here, and I want to just uh, share a thought with you. As I was meditating on communion this morning, I was thinking, you know, Sometimes we come to church, maybe we're not uh, in covenant relationship with God. We're not a follower of Jesus, and maybe we want to be. And communion is really a celebration that you and I are God's people. We're in covenant relationship with him. You see, the Jewish people would celebrate the Passover. And on the night in which he was betrayed, Jesus took bread. He was celebrating the Paschal meal. The Passover meal was simply a reminder of... Uh, what Jesus was coming to fulfill. You know, they were delivered from their bondage. They were delivered from Egypt. Yeah, there were these 10 plagues, but really it was that last expression of the slaying of a lamb and then the putting the blood over the doorposts. An angel of death would come and judge all of those who had not applied that blood over the doorposts. That's really what we're doing. We're, we're celebrating Jesus's death and resurrection here. We're in a covenant relationship. And so as we receive these emblems, this little piece of bread represents the body of Christ. It's not a lamb now, it's Christ's body that's not just take, uh, you know, dealing with our sin issue, he's actually removing our sin. He's taking our sin away from us. How powerful. So Lord, we thank you that you came and died for us. We thank you for this little emblem, Lord, that represents your broken body. And even now as we partake of this emblem, Lord, I pray that all the benefits from salvation to healing to all of the things that you bring into our lives, we would receive those benefits in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's eat this bread together. Paul writing, in the same way after supper, Jesus took the cup saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me, for whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And Father, I wanna just thank you for your amazing sacrifice, a substitutionary sacrifice. You died in order that we might live. And right now, Father, I pray that you would bless this communion time with you and with each other. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's drink this cup together. I'm going to have you just hang on to those cups. And when you leave today, just uh, the, there's some dispensers over there on the way out. Just drop them in them. I'm going to have you stand this morning as we go to the Lord in prayer. 
How many here you've come with a special need on your heart today and you would like to just lift it before God? Anyone here? Yeah, there's a number of you. And I know that there's some situations I come to church and immediately uh, someone mentioned a family in our church. They're experiencing COVID. One of them's in the hospital. So we want to pray for that individual. And then one of our CR families, a little baby's got COVID too. And so, you know, that's a, still a problem in our, our situation right now. We're going to pray and ask God for his mercies. I know many other people are battling other things, cancer, all kinds of stuff that's going on. And so maybe there's, uh, could be mental health issues, it could be financial pressures, could be relational issues. Let's bring these to God in prayer this morning. And so Father, we do come before you with all of our cares, all of our concerns, all of the challenges that are presenting themselves, not only us personally, but corporately, there's individuals in our church family that are suffering, going through very difficult moments in their life. We pray for healing. We pray for forgiveness. We pray for reconciliation. We pray for your provisions, Lord, whatever those provisions might be, Father. And then I pray this morning that you would open our hearts, that we'd hear your voice speaking to us through your word. And I know as we speak, uh, as I speak here, uh, it's we're hearing it collectively, but yet the Holy Spirit, I know that you want to take each aspects of this message and speak to each one of us individually, that we will hear your voice speaking into our current situation, and we thank you for that. May you bring grace and hope and peace and joy, and may you bring uh, a sense of forgiveness and challenge in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You may be seated. We're going to have you uh, turn to your Bibles if you brought them or your phones with your apps on it to 2 Peter chapter 1. This week's message is really a continuation. I didn't finish uh, my sermon last week, so uh, we were introducing the, uh, the book of 2 Peter, and I talked a little bit about how to stand in a time when everything is falling apart. And don't you think we're living in an hour like that? It just seems like everywhere we turn, things are crumbling around us. And we're reminded of that uh, as we look at this, the word of God today. In Hebrews chapter 12, verse 28, I shared that last week. I said, therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. So whatever can be shaken, Hebrews says in verse 27, will be shaken. The only thing that will stand is that which is eternal, and that's the kingdom of God. And so if we base our life on the kingdom of God, if we base our life on that which is eternal, we're not going to fall apart in a time of crisis. How many think that's a great thing? Because you and I can't control tomorrow. We can't control what's going to come our way. We can't control the problems and the challenges that come into our lives. But we can put our trust and confidence in God. One of the problems that we encounter in the Christian life is a balance between what God does and what we are responsible for. In other words, how are we to respond to what God does in our lives? And I think there are really two wrong approaches. And Christians, we kind of fall into one camp or another, or maybe we've experienced both in our, in our lifetime. And the first one is simply that we think everything depends on us. And so we have this idea that if I do the things that God wants me to do, God's happy with me, and therefore God kind of owes me something. And so I'm kind of meriting. And I'm, I'm on a performance treadmill with God. And so I think maybe we've grown up like that as children. We may 
maybe our parents somehow, you know, helped us facilitate that when we were good. We were rewarded when we weren't so good. Uh, we weren't rewarded, and so we developed a performance mentality. And I think there are Christians out there living with a performance mentality, and so we feel like, hey, I'm doing good right now, God's blessing, but if I don't do good, God's going to, you know, turn his back on us. But here's what I want you to hear. God is unchanging. And God's love is unchanging. And regardless of what we're doing, God keeps loving us. Now, that, that's a little foreign thought to most of us, but it's the truth. Now, that's the one extreme, this performance orientation. And some of you, I'm going to pray that you get off that thing because it's, it's so detrimental to your development. But here's the other side. We can then move to the opposite side, which is a passivity, which means I don't do anything. I believe that God does everything, and I wait for God to do it. You know, I'm just sitting here camp believing that you know, God will do everything for me. I don't have to do anything. It's all of grace, and I just camp and do nothing. And then I can't understand why I don't see a lot happening in my life. I'm not growing a lot. I feel stagnant in my Christian experience. Actually, many times I feel defeated in my Christian experience because I've really not matured and developed. And I can't seem to discern what's good and what's better. I've lost that sense of discernment. Now, Peter, in his experience, was warned by Jesus that he was about to fall. How many go, that's kind of a scary thought. You know, Jesus is in the upper room with his disciples, and he said, this very night, you're all going to forsake me. Peter, of course, stands up and says, listen, uh, these guys might let you down, Jesus, but I'm not going to do that. I'll be there for you. And Jesus says, Peter, I've been interceding in prayer for you. Satan has desired to sift you as wheat. You're going to be tested, and I know you're going to deny me three times before the rooster crows twice. Man, Isn't that amazing that Jesus knows what's inside of us even though we sometimes don't know what's inside our own soul. And so the tests of life begin to reveal to us. Some people say, well, why is it important that we're tested? Because you and I begin to discover what's really happening inside of ourselves. We think we're at a certain place, but how many know tests reveal what's really going on? That's why teachers give students tests. You know, you have to find out what they actually know. You know, sometimes people can fool you, but once the test comes, now you begin to see what's really going on in your life. So Peter obviously failed. And I'm sure Peter felt after failure tremendous guilt and shame. We're going to talk about how to overcome feelings of failure, how to overcome the guilt and shame that some of us may be experiencing even today. But Peter goes on to say this at the end of this chapter, or end of this message anyways, in verse 10 of chapter 1. He says, if you do these things, you will never fall. And so I want to talk about how to stand in a time when everything is shaking. So what are the things that you and I need to do in order for us to be able to stand in a time when everything around us seems to be shaking? And I want to take a look at these things. And so last week I pointed out the first thing that we need to do. And I'll just recap briefly. Uh, The first truth that helps us stand in a time of shaking is having a proper understanding of God's grace and power in our lives. In other words, what is it that God does for us? What's this amazing gift that God gives us? Well, it's a person. It's called Jesus. And all that Jesus is, he, he gives to us. He gives us his very own righteousness. And Peter tells us here in first, 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 1, he says, he, he, he defines himself, first of all, as a servant. And I last week explained that means a slave. 
an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who through the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ have received a faith as precious as ours. And I wanted to just focus maybe and recap on the few words here. Number one, the word righteousness. We talked about that. This righteousness that's given to us, it's actually Christ's righteousness. So when you and I stand in the presence of the Father, what he's looking at is Christ's righteousness, not our own. And how many go, that's a good thing. You know, because now he's looking at it as if, just as if we'd never sinned. So we now are in a right standing with God. But also, as we're gonna see through this epistle, Peter's gonna challenge us to actually live right. And that's another expression of righteousness, how to live in a right manner, how to you know, do what's right. The second one word we looked at uh, was the word grace, which means a gift, how God brings his gift of goodness into our lives, how everything that you and I have, not only saving faith, which helps us enter into a relationship with God, but how that God's grace helps you and I to live the Christian life, how it helps us to grow in the Christian life, how to overcome the problems that we have in our lives. We're gonna focus in on that quite a bit this, this morning. And then the other word we talked about was peace, and I talked about the peace with God, how to be reconciled to God, and then the peace of God. Isn't it great when you and I actually have the peace in a time of a storm? You know, where you and I, it's not making sense. It's a, it's a supernatural peace. Instead of being filled with anxiety, you and I have a peace that passes human understanding. You and I are being kept in an hour of shaking and testing and everything else. That we're, There's a quiet confidence inside of us because we know that God is in control and this is not gonna overtake our lives. And then I, I, just, I wanna just leave us with this idea at the end of the first point was just simply this, that you and I have a choice. The only people that can choose to do the right thing, really, ultimately, and to live for God is a believer. See, you're either serving uh, sin and Satan or you're serving righteousness and God. And so, uh, I'm just gonna skip over these two slides here. So the gospel of, of Jesus Christ is not just mere words but it gives us this enabling power to overcome the works of the sinful nature. And we talked about God giving us his nature. And then I, I closed, uh, especially in the first service last week, I actually got to these verses here uh, in Romans chapter six, when he starts talking about what then shall we sin because we're not under the law, but under grace. And Paul says, well, of course not. We don't do that. Rather, don't you know that when you offer yourselves to someone as obedient slaves, you're slaves of the one you obey? Whether you are slaves to sin, which leads to death, or to obedience, which leads to righteousness. So he's basically saying we have a choice. And so there's only two, there's only two camps in this society today. We're either a slave to sin or we're a slave to righteousness. But we are a slave to something. We're either a slave to Satan and his authority or we're a slave to Christ and his kingdom. So we have to choose. And as believers, we have that choice. I think God gives it to people, but a lot of people just choose, you know, to basically I'm gonna do my own thing. And they don't realize that what's really driving them is their own desires. And many of these desires are very selfish and they're sinful. And it actually leads to our own demise. And we see that all the time. But let me continue the journey from last week. This is where we didn't get to, and I wanna look at the second truth. There's only two of them, thankfully. Uh, 
he goes on here to talk about that we are to make our, our calling, basically, that we are to be diligent in making our calling and election sure. With the freedom God gives us, let me go back there. I think it skipped over that. I hit the button. There it is. Point number two, the second truth is simply that as believers, we're to, we're to be diligent in making our calling and election sure. What does that mean? Well, it just means that we're not passive. We're not performance-oriented, but we're not passive. There's something we need to do. We need to cooperate with God. I think that's so important. We're responsible to begin to appropriate and then to apply what God brings into our lives. And we're gonna see that very clearly, both from Peter and from Paul in the New Testament here. Uh, Peter says here in verses five through seven, he says, for this very reason. Well, what reason? Because of God's great and precious promises. Because of God's power that he's put his nature inside of us. Because of these things, he says, because he's given us this like precious faith, he says, for this reason, make every effort. He's not talking about earning something. He's just saying make an effort. And what are we to do? We're to add to our faith goodness. I'll explain what these words mean in a minute. To goodness, knowledge, to knowledge, self-control, to self-control, perseverance, to perseverance, godliness, and to godliness, mutual affection, and to mutual affection, love. This is actually what we would call a list of moral virtues, okay? These are, this is a list of moral virtues, and we need to understand that God is calling us to be virtuous. And, and uh, by the way, this list is very familiar. You know, even before Christianity came along and the Jews had lists of moral virtues, but also the Greeks did. And if you go back into the uh, era of the golden age of Greek philosophy, you'd have people like Plato and Aristotle. They wrote on ethics. And they spoke a lot about moral virtues. I don't know if you realize that. I've even, uh, I remember taking a course on uh, Aristotle's ethics. Very fascinating, and, and how ethical he was trying to help people to become. But what, what the problem is, is we've lost the sense of that in our culture today. How many know that ethics and moral virtues are hardly ever spoken of today? And so now we're living in a culture today that we're moving away from that, and it's becoming a very degenerated culture. We've moved away from integrity, we've moved away from morality, and we've moved away from virtue. And what happens is people are becoming far more self-centered and very selfish and demanding their rights and we see all of that and so we're seeing us we're actually seeing the western civilization as we know it going into great state of decay that's what we're witnessing right now and so what i'm what i'm doing here as a christian i'm trying to say to you listen you and i can stand in an hour where our civilization is crumbling you and I can stand in the midst of this crumbling that's happening around us. And I believe that you and I need to be the people that become like salt and light in this broken world. You and I are the people that all of a sudden are living a totally different lifestyle. That you and I are filled with hope and joy and peace. And people are looking at our lives and they're going, how can you guys live like this when everybody else is living like that? You're out of step with the culture. And so now they're beginning to ask us. See, I, I think this is a 
great hour. The backdrop is getting darker. And so how many know that you know, when you're a star shining in the sky, in the, in, the, in the midday sun, you don't see that star, but in the darkest hour of the night, the stars start shining brightly. And you and I can be those stars shining in this backdrop of moral decadency. And people now beginning to ask us for the hope that lies within us so we can share the good news about Jesus Christ. Well, these are qualities that constitute spiritual maturity. And one of my deepest concerns as a pastor is that every one of us grows up. Now, how many know when you're a little child, you always want to be older? How many notice that about being children? You know, you're, you're, everybody's saying, hey, just relax, enjoy your childhood, right? You don't want to grow up. It's got all these responsibilities, but everybody wants to mature and grow up. And we get a little concerned when people are 30 years old and behaving like 10. I mean, that's, that's you know, you're, you always worry about that kind of stuff because you're saying you're not developing correctly, you're not maturing. And that's the same thing in the Christian life, that you and I are called to spiritual maturity. God wants us to grow up. God wants us to become more like him. I mean, he, he's not upset when we begin the journey and we're like infants in Christ and we're just starting out and we're struggling with things. But eventually, he's calling us to move forward, to develop and to move beyond where we were in our past. But yet, so often, what Christians tend to do is focus on external things. We have a tendency to do that. Because these virtues are not something we're locked into. We don't think about these things. And so I like what R.C. Sproul says, that other generations, and even some church groups today, they're still locked in on an external form of religion. And I think that's what turns people off, is this external stuff. And Sproul says it this way, in every generation of Christians, there's been a widespread attempt not only to ignore the virtues set forth in sacred scripture, but to supplant them with something that is far less demanding. And he says it this way, there are churches that project the profile of a Christian as someone who does not dance, go to movies, drink, or smoke, as if these were the major matters in the kingdom of God. Now, I know that used to be the way it was. I remember when I was a younger Christian, this was a big deal, right? But how many know you can actually avoid dancing, movies, drinking, and smoking and still not be in the kingdom of heaven? Those are only external things. That's not, what, that's not what the kingdom of God is about. The kingdom of God is spiritual. The kingdom of God is internal. Yes, you will see the fruit of it externally, but it's internal. And so we're gonna look at what God's really looking at changing is not external things. He's looking at changing the heart. He's looking at changing the innermost part of our being. When we change our heart, our attitudes change, our, the, our relationships with people change, the way we treat people changes. That's what God is interested in seeing transpire in our lives. Actually, this stuff is really legalism, and that's so deadly. It doesn't produce good fruit. It produces critical, judgmental Christians. That's what it produces, and I think we've all seen that. Yet, we are called by God to do something from the work of grace that's happening in our heart. Paul the Apostle, you know, he says it, uh, well, he says, uh, it's much easier, I love this line, to refrain from movies than to acquire a character known for patience. How many know it's easier to skip going to the show than to really develop a patient heart? That's a lot harder to develop patience, isn't it? He says, and kindness and meekness. We should be most diligent to acquire the virtues set forth here in our text that we're gonna look at. Now, Paul says it this way in the letter to the Philippians. He says in Philippians chapter two, verse 12, 
He says, therefore, my dear friends, so as you've always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence. Continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. So God is telling us to do something. We have to work out. But how do you, I always say to people, you can only work out what God's worked in. And then he says it here. For it is God who does what? Who works in you. So we're working out what God's working in. What does God work into our lives? He's gonna work in these virtues in our lives. God's gonna give us opportunity to really develop these things. Who works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. Now how many know that one of the ways you can tell you're a Christian is by your desires and by what you're feeding, your soul. And I'll tell you what I mean by that. You know, when I wasn't a Christian, I had no desire for spiritual things. Anybody relate to that? I had no interest in reading the Bible. I really had no interest in that. I had no interest in going to church. Why would I want to do that? That's boring, right? Everybody relate to what I'm saying? No desire for that stuff. But then I become a believer, and all of a sudden, I go, oh, I really want to know God, and I really want to understand what God's like. And now I start reading the Bible, and it's really exciting, and the Spirit of God is speaking to me through the Scriptures. All of a sudden, I have a whole new set of desires. But you know, whatever you feed, that's going to intensify. And one of the things that happens is when we first become a believer, we get all excited about our faith, and we go in a direction. But after a while, we can become undisciplined and a little lazy. Come on now. Isn't that true? Does that happen? Of course it does. And eventually, we don't, you know, it's whatever you feed your soul. That's what, that's what your soul's going to get accustomed to. So there's a connection between what God does and what our response is. Uh, and I, I really believe this. Even though our efforts are inadequate, how many can say that's true? Even though I try and they're, 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 I struggle. Does anybody else struggle besides me? And they're a little bit inadequate at times. Here's the good news. God's grace and spirit is there to help you through your struggles. How many like that? That you're not alone. You're not stuck. God's, God's going to help you get to where you're going. As a matter of fact, I love what Peter's trying to tell us here in this book. He said, you know, I was a failure once, but I'm going to tell you the secret to how to be a success at the end. How many want to successfully live out the Christian life right to the very end? That's where I'm at. And Peter's going to tell us how not to fall. I think that's good, good information. So he's, he, uh, Walls and Anders write verses, b- between verses uh, 5 and 7, it says that shows that each believer also has a role to play in this transformation. We have a resolve, a desire, a commitment to growth and transformation must be part of the individual believer's life if the Holy Spirit is to be effective. In other words, we've got to cooperate with God. We gotta get on his track. We gotta say, okay, is this what you want me to do? I'm gonna go do it. I'm gonna start living in obedience to God's purposes for my life. I'm gonna, I wanna, I believe the goal in my life is to be like Jesus. That's the real goal. I'm gonna try to get there with God's help. That's gonna be the goal of my life. It's not about how much money I'm gonna make or how much fun I'm gonna have in life or how many pleasures or how many places I'm gonna go see. That's not what it's about. It's about getting to know God. And it's interesting that God is a fruit inspector. What do you mean? He checks us out. He expects things from our lives. And Peter's gonna tell us, if you do these things that I'm gonna tell you, it's gonna keep you from being ineffective and unfruitful. 
And remember what God says in one of the parables. He's looking at this tree, it's not producing fruit. What did Jesus, he was gonna curse that tree. It's not a good thing to be unproductive, unfruitful. As a matter of fact, Peter says if you're like that, it's just as if you've forgotten that you were forgiven from your sins and you're literally myopic, you're, you're nearsighted. You're, you're not seeing clearly. You're not getting the bigger picture. You're locked into this world, which is a small fragment of time, rather than seeing the bigger picture, which is for all of eternity. So let's take a look here at uh, these virtues. Thomas Schreiner points out, when we examine the chain of virtues in 2 Peter, it's doubtful that we should understand each virtue actually building on the previous one. In other words, these things aren't, well, I've mastered this one, now I move on to the next one. No, no, these are concurrent. These are happening simultaneously. These are happening all at one time. So it's not like you're mastering one and moving on to the next. You and I never master these things. We're supposed to be growing in these things together, all of them. But it's interesting that the, the, the list starts out with what? It begins with faith and it ends with love. Now, I think there's a reason for that. As a matter of fact, Paul talks about that in 1 Corinthians 13. He, sa he says, the greatest of these is faith, hope, and love, and the greatest of these is love. So the, the beginning point of our relationship with God is always the doorway of faith. We start believing God, he opens our soul up, we believe the grace of God comes in, right? And then all of a sudden we're growing, and the end result of our growth is that we become like God. We become like Jesus Christ, but what is God like? Well, the Bible tells me God is love. And so what should be happening in my life is I should be becoming more loving. Right? So if I'm getting more unloving, more uh, obnoxious and cranky and angry and frustrated, I would say something's not right in your life. You're not moving in the right direction. You've taken, you've taken a detour off the main highway of becoming like God, like, because that's not what God is like. So let's go back to find out maybe where we took that detour off. And I think what we're gonna find out is, you know, we have the wrong goal. When you have the wrong goal in mind, the wrong destination in mind, you're not gonna to get to where God wants you to get to. God has a destination in mind for all of us. And we're seeing this in this list of virtues as we're gonna look at them. He goes on to say, love is the goal and climax of the Christian life. So let's take a look at the list. We're to add to our faith goodness. That Greek word is aretes. And a number of years ago, I, I actually ordered a course on uh, Aristotle's ethics. And he talked a lot about Aretes, which is really moral goodness and what it really looks like. It's really fascinating. So I, got in, I, I started realizing that there are people out there who are moral. They, have, they, 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 they believe in ethics. You know, not everybody's against ethics. Some people think it's important. But the scriptures really talk about it very powerfully. And I love the way Michael Green talks about it. He says, uh, this, this goodness is actually true, it's human excellence. If you wanna, you wanna live at a, you know, what, what, does, what does it mean to be a phenomenal person? Well, you're, you have, you're, there's goodness. And it can only be acquired through a personal and continuous encounter with Christ by faith. So you and I need to feed on the person of God. How many know you kind of become who you're around or what you're exposing yourself to? I mean, all parents get this, you know. I can almost tell where my kids have been hanging, who they've been hanging with. Because you can see it in their, their attitudes, their language, and their behavior. How many parents say that's true? 
You know, but if they hang around with the right kind of people, they're gonna be affected in the right kind of a way. And I'm, I'm saying this, that you and I don't ever get past that. We're all still kids. We're all still children of God. So if I'm hanging with God every morning and I am spending time with him, guess what's gonna happen? I'm gonna start thinking like him. You say, well, how do, I, how do I hang with God? Well, you spend time in his word. And when as I'm reading the word, I'm praying the Holy Spirit reveal himself to me. And I start reading and I start thinking about what Jesus is doing here, what Paul is saying here, what Peter's teaching there. And even in the Old Testament, what's going on? And I'm sitting there reading this stuff and I'm realizing this is what God's like. God's against this, God's for this. And I start my, my, my mind starts going, well, I need to be for what God's for, and I need to be against what God's against, and God's against sin, and God's for righteousness, so I need to make that shift in my own thinking. And it's amazing when you spend time with God every day how that impacts you and starts affecting your thinking and your life and your decisions even during that day. And many times what happens is when you're reading scripture on a daily basis, you find out that some of the ideas that God's deposited in your heart for that day kind of blurred out during the day. Isn't that amazing? How many know what I'm talking about? Anybody relate to what I'm talking about here? Yeah, it's really powerful, isn't it? So God is shaping our life because we're hanging with him. Now, we add to this goodness knowledge, but this is the knowledge of God that imparts to us and leads to practical outcomes. Now, I don't know if you've ever read uh, J.I. Packer's uh, very classical book, Knowing God. I love that book, and it's very insightful, and he says something in one of the chapters. I'm gonna just read a little excerpt from his book. He says, what were we made for? Why were you created? To know God. I mean, that's a neat goal, isn't it? You were made to know God. I was made to know God. What aim should we set ourselves in life? To know God. What's the eternal life that Jesus gives us? Knowledge of God. Listen to what John 17, three says. This is life eternal, that they might know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. So this is what life is all about, is knowing God. Well, what is the best thing in life that will bring more joy, delight, and contentment than anything else? And the right answer is the knowledge of God. So if you're shooting for, you know, I want to have the greatest amount of joy in life, the greatest amount of contentment in life, and if you don't make God your goal, you're never going to get the other things because all those other things are byproducts. As a matter of fact, I actually spoke at a funeral on Friday, and I told the people at the funeral, because a lady was a Christian, I said, it's interesting that you have to hunger and thirst after righteousness in order to be satisfied. Isn't that interesting? Hunger and thirst. You see, you have to have a sense of desire. You know, how many know dead people don't, are usually not hungry or thirsty? Does anybody know that? They don't have that problem. But when you're a living person, there should be a hunger and thirst. But what's your hunger and thirst for? And if you have a hunger and thirst after righteousness, then you're gonna find satisfaction in your life. As a matter of fact, when I officiated at Andrea's wedding, my first daughter, I said to Curtis and Andrea, I said, I wanna leave you the one verse that has totally shaped and defined my life. I'm gonna leave this to you. If you practice this verse, I guarantee you, you're gonna do good. Here's what it says. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these other things will be added to you. Isn't that beautiful? See, if you put the right thing first, everything else works out in life. Now, I can look back now over, you know, 40-some plus years as a Christian, and I can say, that's what I've endeavored to do. And you know what I'm going to say to you now? At my age, I'm going to say, I am full of joy. 
I am full of gratitude. Patty and I talk, and we go, we are so thankful. We have been so blessed because we have made that our pursuit. It was the right decision. When you have the right goals, it's amazing what starts happening in your life. You don't live with all kinds of regret. It was the right thing to do, and I'm rejoicing in that. He goes on to say here, what of all the states God ever sees man in and it gives him, God, the most pleasure? Knowledge of himself. I desire the knowledge of God more than burnt offerings, says the Lord. In other words, God says, I'm not even interested in your sacrifices. I'm interested in you getting to know me. That's what he's telling us. That's what Hosea chapter 6, verse 6 says. And once you become aware that the main business that you're here for is to know God, most of life's problems fall into the pl uh, their place of their own accord. Isn't that amazing? See, we think the problem is the problem. Can I just tell you something? That's not the problem. And I'll tell you why. Hold on for a minute. You're not going to like this, but I'm going to tell you the truth. Here it is. In life, you'll always have problems. I, I could pick the person that's the oldest person here, and I could ask them, do you still have problems? I'll say, oh yeah, pastor, I still got problems. You see, no matter how old you are, you can never get rid of those crazy things. They're just always there. Jesus actually promised us problems. He says, in this world, you will have problems or tribulation. That's part of life. So you can allow problems to be, could, could be the thing that drives you crazy. You can be saying, I just want to get rid of these things. You know, just could they get out of my life? I'm saying they'll always be dogging your steps. They're always there. And so what we tend to do is we become problem-centered. How many say, Pastor, that's so true? I just get locked into my problems. How many go, that's true? And it creates anxiety. And what I'm going to tell you here today, here's the secret. Even though you have the problems, and they'll always be there. Jesus says, be of good cheer. Why? I've overcome the world. See, think of Peter. You know, here he is. They're in a boat. There's a storm going on. Jesus is walking on water. It's a great story. I love this story. Jesus is walking on water in a storm. Wind and waves are billowing. And Peter, they think it's a ghost. Jesus says, no, no, it's me. <laughs> wow. It's nighttime. Peter said, well, if it's really you, let me go out there and walk with you. And Jesus, come on, Peter. And Peter, I love Peter. He's a little impetuous, but he's spontaneous. He jumps out of the boat, and he's walking on water. I love that story. He's a water walker. But you know what happens to Peter? <clears throat> Instead of, you know, he was looking at Jesus. He was all excited. But then he noticed that he's walking. Number one, I'm walking on water. I'm doing something I shouldn't be doing. This is not even probable or possible. And then he looks around the wind and the waves are going. And as he's looking at the wind and the waves, the scriptures teach us what happens. He starts sinking. And he starts sinking. And, you know, pretty soon he's going to drown. And he says, help. And Jesus reaches down and picks him up. See, our focus needs to be on Christ, not our problems. And you know, I've noticed something in my life, because I'm, I'm older than many of you, and I can honestly say this, I've had, pro you know, there's always problems. And when you're a leader, you even have more problems, because you've got everybody else's problems, right? It's the way it works. But here's what I notice, if I'm focused on the problems, it'll weigh me down and you'll lose heart. My devotional reading the other day, I was reading this, it says, you know, you know people lose heart. You know, they, they, they give up. They want to give up. You know, a lot of leaders today have lost heart. They want to quit. They want to give up. And I, I was praying for them because I was saying, Lord, help them not to give up. Help them to get their focus in the right place. See, if we're focused on Jesus, we're going to overcome these things. We're going to be water walkers. Everyone's going to go, how are you guys doing the impossible here? How are you guys living in the midst of all these problems? How can you guys stand when everything is shaking? I got my eyes on that which is eternal. 
you see? Think about life, how short it really is. It's just a vapor. It's going to go by so quickly, isn't it? And yet we're so locked into time. But what's, you know, even if you live to be 100 years old, what's that in compared to eternity? And just imagine, even if your life was very difficult, you know what Paul says about life? He says, I count all my problems as light afflictions in comparison to the amazing weight of glory that I'm going to inherit for all of eternity. Better to have a difficult life and a glorious eternity than to have a glorious little lifespan and a miserable eternity. But that's sometimes what people choose. It's just such a a nearsighted approach to life. Let's move on here. It says here uh, that people mature as we basically get into the word of God. Uh, Hebrews chapter five, verse 14 says, but solid food is for the mature. He's talking here in the chapter about newborn believers drinking the sincere milk of the word. But how many know babies stop drinking milk after a while? They gotta eat something with a little more substance. Otherwise, they're gonna be in trouble. Do you know you have to eventually feed a child more than just milk? How many know that's true? Or they're gonna be in major, they're they're gonna have malnutrition and all kinds of difficult problems in their lives. So you have to move from infancy to maturity. You can see it. And when you and I are in the word of God, it says if we constantly use it, what's it gonna do? It's gonna train us to be able to distinguish between what is good from evil. God wants us to know what's the difference. But we can't just cruise along. The more a man allows his mind to grow slack and lazy and flabby, the less the Holy Spirit can say to him. Isn't that true? You know, if you don't spend time with, in the presence of the word of God, in the presence of God, listening to God, you're gonna, you're gonna eventually, you know what? You're, you're basically getting weaker and weaker and you don't even realize it. You say, how do I do this? You know, how, how can I start spending time with God? Well, I think you gotta get up in the morning or I, I do it in the morning, some people do it at night, whatever works for you. Uh, I like the morning because I like to have something to go on. You know, it's like a lot of people don't eat breakfast. How many know breakfast is the most important meal? But people don't realize that. Uh, Just pointing that out, then they they eat kind of crazy at other times. But, you know, there's a way to do things, guys. But if you're eating the word of God, think about it. You have something to nourish your soul. You say, how do I do it? I, I get a paper. You know, if that would be a rocket scientist, little pen and paper and start writing thoughts down. You know, the Holy Spirit can talk to each one of us right where we're at. And whatever stands out to you, write it down. And maybe you have questions. You know, I'm reading this, I don't understand that. Look it up. There are more helps today to help you understand the Bible than there ever been. Write down your questions. You know, sometimes you'll write down a question and then three weeks later, you're reading another passage of scripture. You go, oh, there's the answer to the question I asked three weeks ago. But I remember something. When you write things down, it sticks with you a lot better than when you don't write it down. You know, I always jokingly say a short pencil is better than a long memory. So, notice here, the Jews, it says about the Berean Jews, when Paul was preaching the gospel, notice what it says. They were more noble in character than those from Thessalonica, for they received the message with what? Look at the adjective. Great earnestness. And then they examined the scriptures every day. Can I stop and ask a question? Is that you? You come to the scriptures with great eagerness to examine the scriptures daily. If you do, you're a Berean. That's my prayer for you, that you'll you'll be like that. Why? Because they wanted to make sure what was the truth. Even though Paul was a good preacher, they said, hey, what is he saying? Can this be supported by scripture? 
That's what we should be doing. One of my deepest concerns in the Western church is how biblically illiterate the church has become today. I'm serious about this, and it's a great concern that I have. Because people today rather would listen to people who are gonna tell them what they wanna hear rather than what they need to hear. Personally, I don't wanna make God after my image because then that's gonna be a bad situation. That'll be, you know, I'm, I'm actually worshiping myself. I think there are Christians just worshiping themselves. But we wanna be people that are after God's image, and therefore we have to get to know who the true and the living God is. And how do we do that? We gotta get into the word. Notice the, the Thessalonica, people from Thessalonica. Uh, you know, the book of Acts says this about them, or Paul writes this about them. He said, the coming of the lawless one will be in accordance with how Satan works. So how does Satan work? He will use all sorts of display of power through signs and wonders that serve the lie. You know, people say to me, well, yeah, but there's miracles, Pastor. I go, so what? You have to understand something. God performs miracles, so does Satan. Okay, did everybody know that Satan performs miracles? Uh, Read the story in the book of Exodus when Moses is bringing the children of Israel out. God is doing miracles, but the magicians are coming along and duplicating some of them. Have you noticed that? Anyway, pick up on that. So just because you see miracles, that doesn't mean, you know, miracles are the absolute, it's where the miracles are pointing you to. See, it's a sign pointing you to what? In this case, they're serving a lie. Look what it says here. In all the ways that wickedness deceives those who are perishing, they perish because of why? They refuse to love the truth and so be saved. Why is truth so important? Because in our world today, you know, people are discrediting that there's even an absolute idea called truth. That's a concept that's happening in our culture today. There's no absolute. But let me point out to you something. Jesus said what? I am the way, the truth, and the life. Truth is actually a person. Truth, if you search for truth, you'll eventually find the person of truth who's Jesus. You will come to that place. And so you and I have to have a heart after that. It says, for this reason, God sends them a powerful delusion so that they'll believe the lie. See, God says, oh, you want to believe a lie? Sure, I'll let that happen. Because it's actually another test. And we have to see if we're going to embrace the truth. Next, Peter tells us that we need to add to our knowledge self-control. Self-control means to harness our passions rather than being controlled by them. So how does that happen? that we have to submit to Christ. We have to submit to his word. This is, a, I think, very relevant uh, for the moment we're living in because today there's a lot of people that are saying we can live any way we want to and God's grace will forgive us. Michael Green says, any system which divorces our faith from ethics is a fundamental heresy. And when we're gonna look through Second Peter here, we're gonna see that one of the things that Peter's concerned about is the way people are living. Because I think that when we have the true truth, we're going to live the right way. When we understand what's right, we're going to do the right thing. So what you and I believe is critical to how you and I are going to behave. It's very powerful. Self-control empowers perseverance. You know, Michael Green says, perseverance is that temper of mind which is unmoved by difficulty and distress and which can withstand two satanic agencies of opposition from the world without and the enticements of the flesh within. We learn to see our apparent misfortune in light of eternity rather than just time. It's interesting uh, that I'm, I'm gonna come back to this 
See if I can get back there in a minute. Okay, so Aristotle, remember I quoted him earlier. He said, self-control is concerned with pleasures and endurance with sorrows. For the man who can endure and put up with hardships is the real example of endurance. Let me ask a question. This culture, how much can we endure? Not a lot. As a matter of fact, it's interesting that Matthew says this, but he who stands firm, or in the King James says, endures to the end will be saved. How many here want to endure to the end? Yeah, I do, you know? And that's what he's talking about here. How do, how do we endure? He's teaching us now. He says, add these virtues to your life. Let's go back here to the one I was uh, saying. Godliness really is, is a concept of reverence towards God. It's seen in deep piety of devotion um, towards God, and it's a healthy respect of who he is and what he says. One of my deepest concerns, personally, is that we're living in an age where people don't fear God. But when we don't fear God, we lack wisdom. Because Proverbs says the, big, the fear of the Lord is what? The beginning of wisdom and the beginning of knowledge or the knowledge of God. And so, you know what? What it should do, what we should be like is when we, when we hear these things, we say, oh God, I just want to do what you're telling me to do. I, I want to respond to your word. And you can see people are really indifferent to the word of God. We, we even dismiss it. We argue against it and all kinds of stuff. Uh, godliness then exhibits itself into mutual affection. Do you know God knows how much you love him? How does God know how much you love him? By the way you treat people. That's, how, that's the test. So the way I treat Patty and my daughters, my sons-in-law, my grandkids, uh, my staff, you, God goes, I'm looking at how you treat people. That's how much I know you love me or don't love me. So, you know, if I'm walking around cheating people, lying, deceiving, doing all that stuff, God says, you don't love me. You think you do, but you don't. You wouldn't be behaving like that. See, that's why these virtues are so important. He's explaining that. You'll, this virtue of mutual affection you know, we should grow up to the point where now our lives become about others. And that our greatest joy, I can tell how mature a person is by how much they're willing to do for other people. When I see that they become selfless and they're giving of themselves to other people, I go, only a mature person does that. It's not about what I can get, it's about what I can give. And I'm really deeply distressed because what I'm hearing from Christians today, it, we're more concerned about our rights than we are about laying them down. And I'm noticing something. I'm noticing a trend that people who stand up for themselves all the time, they're the angry, frustrated people. And the happy people are those that are saying, Lord, you're totally in charge here. And I don't have to have my way because I really want your will to be done. And I can trust that you're going to work this stuff out. Now, you're saying, well, what, wait a minute, Pastor. That means you put up with everything. I said, no, there's a time to stand up and speak the truth, but we need to do it in a loving way. And I think that's where we've missed it. You know, we're, we're speaking, we're standing for truth, but we're not doing it in a loving way. You know, Jesus was very wise. You know, look at the people who he really challenged. You know who they were? They were the religious people. I think that's fascinating. Maybe we're going to learn something from that. Michael Green says, it means that, uh, I've got to move ahead now. 
It means guarding that spirit-giving unity from destruction by gossip, prejudice, narrowness, and the refusal to accept a brother Christian for what he is in Christ. What is he talking about? Mutuality, mutual love. See, you know, when we're gossiping against somebody, how can you say you love them? You're destroying them, you know? Or you're prejudiced against someone, you know? That's not, we, we need to have an open heart to who people are. Then Peter goes on to say this, if you possess these qualities in increasing measure, they will keep you from being what? Ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. R.C. Sproul says, Peter directs this critique not to pagans but to Christians who become short-sighted because they forget that they were cleansed from their sin. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, make every effort to confirm your calling and election. For if you do these things, you will what? Never stumble, and you will receive a rich welcome into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's stand. I think so often in life, we become seduced by the things we see. We're seduced by the anxieties and the pressures we feel. It's true, we are. And when that happens, we become ripe for failure and a fall. And then the accuser, when we fail and fall, what is the accuser of the brethren? What does Satan do? The moment we fail, he's right there to say, you're useless. And you get filled with guilt and shame. And then you start to feel like there's no hope for you. How can God ever forgive me? But here's what you need to know. Like sometimes Adam and Eve, we, we run away from God, right, when we fail. But we need to be more like the prodigal. When he finally came to himself, what happened? He said, I need to go back to my father's house because I know he's gonna treat me better than anybody else. And we know that's what happened. Actually, that story is to explain to us now we think it's about the prodigal son. We could rename that parable the prodigal father because prodigal means wasteful, right? He was wasteful with his love. He was extravagant with his love. He'd already given his son his share in the inheritance. What does he do? His son comes back, he just celebrates him. He said, my son was dead, now he's alive to me. And he ran to him. What a powerful image. That's the picture of God. And I like what David Helm says. Guilt and shame are un unwanted companions that dog our lives from behind. I've noticed two things about guilt and shame. First, they bark at, heel, bark at their heels most often right after spiritual failure. And second, it's tough to outrun them. And like us, Simon Peter knew the destructive power of a debilitating force of guilt and shame. Not in his wildest dreams did Peter think that he could reconnect with Jesus, but who took the initiative? Jesus did. He says, tell my disciples and Peter to meet me. Jesus appeared to Peter, he restored him. And right now, I wanna just ask the question, just with every head bowed, because there's a couple of things I want us to get out of this. First of all, how many here can say, you know, Pastor, I have to be honest, I have been quite passive in my approach to Christianity. Not that I'm in the performance mode, I want you to be delivered from that. But you could say, I've been really passive. I haven't been adding to my faith moral virtue. Is that you this morning? Just raise your hand. I want to pray with you. I'm here to challenge you. That's what you need to be doing. You need to take these words very seriously. 
and say, you know what? I don't want to be unfruitful and unproductive. I want to become more like my God. Maybe you're here today and you say, you know what? I feel like I'm such a failure. Maybe I'm battling guilt and shame. To you, I want to say this this morning. He's here to forgive you. He's here to restore you. You know what? God is not, I mean, if he can restore Peter, he can restore you. You know, Peter denied knowing Jesus three times. Sometimes we deny knowing Christ by the way we behave. Isn't that how it happens? It's not the unpardonable sin, folks. God wants to bring forgiveness in our lives because he wants us to succeed. We're his children. He wants to pick us back up. So maybe some of you, that's where you're at this morning. And you're saying, you know what? I want God to forgive me this morning. I want God to remove the shame that I'm living with. Maybe some of you are struggling with sin issues. This is very powerful. You've struggled with addiction issues, and now you're living under uh, guilt and shame. Is that you? Just raise your hand. I want to pray with you this morning. Okay? All right. Some of you? All right. Let's pray. Let's pray this morning. Father, thank you that this is a very practical message to help us develop moral virtues in our life by the power of your grace and righteousness in our lives. Lord, help us to work out what you have put inside of us. Help us not to be a slave to sin any longer, but to be a slave of righteousness. Help us to do the right thing and find such deep, meaningful satisfaction that literally the things that we once appeal to us will now be revolting to us and we'll have no desire for that because we'll see how beggarly and weak and detrimental and selfish it really is. And I pray, Lord, that you would enrich our lives with your grace, your forgiveness, and your goodness. And we thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you as you leave this morning.